So we're going we're gonna to jump right in. It is a missions conference, so I hope it is appropriate um, for me to open us in prayer. Um, so we're going to ask the Lord to just bless our time uh, this afternoon, and uh, we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your goodness and your grace this morning. We're thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for his death, burial, and resurrection that we might have life and life in him abundantly. Uh, Father, that is a great truth that we hold to. Father, as we think about global missions, we think about uh, health care in that environment um, around the world, all the different needs that are talked about and being talked about even in this moment. Father, we pray for your goodness and your guidance and your sovereignty and your grace um, for all of the ministry work that's going on uh, both here in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, We pray, Father, that many will be healed. Uh, We pray that many will be healed. found favorable in your eyes, that they'll be uh, converted uh, and trusting in you. Uh, But, Father, there might be solutions um, to some really complex issues uh, facing our world. And so we just ask for your grace in this time, and thank you again for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, my name is Corey Bledsoe. Um, I am currently uh, the executive director of an organization here in Louisville uh, called ReCenter Ministries. Uh, It was formerly Louisville Rescue Mission. Um, I don't know where everyone in the room is from, uh, but um, there are similar rescue missions around the country uh, in various uh, cities and metropolitans around uh, around the country that we partner with as well. Um, My introduction into addiction uh, was really about 11 years ago. Um, I um, will preface everything with um, I was not asked to share because of a medical background. I was asked to share this topic um, just simply because I'm not a medical professional. Um, And to give more of a very practical approach to addiction and what we see and experience, um, both in our community, obviously, but then uh, around the country and then around the world. Uh, and maybe hopefully uh, some practical um, steps or things to think about um, going forward and going out of this place uh, when it comes to uh, addiction and whatever that looks like in in your own community. And so um, this is also intended to be kind of an interactive uh, time, and so I I certainly welcome questions. Technically, we're supposed to have a QA and a at the end. I always enjoy to do Q&A as we're going, and so please don't um, hesitate to ask questions. Um, don't hesitate to speak up. Like This is supposed to be very interactive, this, this particular topic, um, because we can all learn from each other. Um, I am no expert uh, in addiction by any stretch of the imagination. I have a little bit of an experience um, over the past 11 years uh, working directly with people, Um, so there are certainly some things that I've learned in that um, and some professional development stuff, but my educational background is sport management, business, and theology, so there it is. Um, uh, But again, uh, the design of today's uh, today's lesson is to just talk practically, uh, just to have an open and honest conversation uh, about addiction uh, around the world. And so... Uh, the first question that I have for you all, and, and just a few, a few of you, if you wouldn't mind, uh, what prompted you to look at this topic? There's so many other topics you could have chosen uh, at this 4 o'clock hour. What prompted you to say, okay, here's some random guy who's talking about um, you know, this practical guide to a complex issue of addiction. So what, what is it that prompted you? What are, what are you looking for in today's, uh, today's lesson? Anybody can speak out. What in the world is going on in addiction? Okay. We'll do our best. I was a drug addict for about 10 years of my life, not okay. 15, for four years. So okay. I'm 
honestly just reaching more people, and I know where I stand on it, but yeah. honestly, just the more you can share and the more you can reach different people and speak different things, and the more you know. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, as part of the community, my husband and I is involved in a program called Celebrate Recovery. Absolutely. So we are working at that end as a recovery coach, emergency department recovery coach, so I'm Okay. Yeah, yeah, we're familiar with Celebrate Recovery. Um, our guys will be there tomorrow night, so uh, in our program. So we love Celebrate Recovery. It's a great, great avenue of of, of support uh, for folks that are in recovery, for sure. Um, anything else before we kind of jump in? Okay. Yeah. The practical, okay? Like what to do? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of what we're going to explore. Like, what do you do? What are, what, are, what are things that we're going to have to think about uh, in the midst of this? If, if I were to, to poll this room, um, usually if someone is coming to a session and choosing to go to a session that has something to do with addiction or has something to do with homelessness or has something to do with whatever you know, topic X, um, usually there is a reason that somebody is wanting to sit and learn more about it. It may be I have a family member. It may be I have a friend. It may be that in my own community I'm, I'm volunteering with something or I work in it or I see it in the hospital. Um, you know, I have a friend that's uh, an ER doctor here in Louisville, and, and he and I have just incredible conversations about what he's seeing in the ER and then how does that impact me as a provider in the community. Um, those are things that we, that we really just kind of dialogue around and, and try to learn from each other around uh, on what do we do. What are practical things that we do? Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to advocate uh, for one, one position over another or one solution over another because I think it's a very, again, complex issue. And if you talk to folks that are in, in recovery, you talk to folks that are active in addiction or have tried different recovery methods, you'll find that you know, what works for one may not be the same thing that works for another. And, and, and so... I don't want to confuse practicality with a debate on methodology. Because methodology is different. Methodology can be different. And so we just need to think, I think we just need to think broadly uh, about uh, what are some things that we can have in common um, that we can, as we're trying to address this. So, yeah, a couple of things. Obviously, we need to define the problem. So this is just some quick statistics. Uh, the question, is there really a problem? I mean, it doesn't take long. Uh, you don't have to scale the news uh, for too often uh, on any given day or any given moment uh, to recognize and to think about and to see in our own communities, our own country, and around the world um, that substance abuse, substance use disorder, addiction, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's a combination of both, whether it's co-occurring disorders, which is mental health, uh, coupled with addiction and substance abuse, um, all of these, it, it doesn't take much to realize that, that families are, are being impacted. Families are being torn apart. I mean, I could tell you story after story of just damaging effects, not only of the individual, but, but family. Uh, and, and I don't say that to be crass. I don't say that to be uh, you know, insensitive. I just, it's just reality. I mean, it's just reality. And, and I think we have to talk about that. And so... Some of the statistics that we see, um, as you can see up here, uh, 2016, approximately 275 million people uh, used an illicit drug uh, throughout the world. 
Um, this is coming from World Health Organization. This is also coming from the CDC uh, here locally. Uh, 2017 in the U.S. reported 70,237 drug overdose deaths. So two years ago, 70,000 U.S. citizens, 70,000 people in our country died from a drug overdose. 70,000 people. That's like an entire football stadium of people. If to put it, you know, if you're a sports fan, put it in the context of stadiums. It's like, you know, the Colts stadium. I think they seat somewhere 60-something thousand, 70-something thousand. Like, that's an entire stadium worth of people from drug overdose. And then we look, and, and there's a lot more conversation, obviously, around opioids and, and, and what's going on with, with opioids. And we see that of that, 67.8% of the deaths were opioid-related. Um, in Kentucky, we're in Kentucky, so we'll talk about Kentucky. We're one of the highest rates in the country for overdose, right here in Kentucky. So 37.2 people per 100,000 will die of a drug overdose. So, again, whatever concert metaphor, stadium metaphor, you're in, the, you're in a place with, you know, you go down to Tuscaloosa this weekend, there'll be 107,000 people watching an LSU-Alabama football game. Just think about somewhere in that stadium, 37 or so people are going to die. Somewhere. So just, you don't know if it's the person next to you, you don't know who it is, you don't know what's going on. But that, those are kind of perspectives that we can look at then you come into alcohol, approximately 56,000 alcohol-related deaths in the U.S. in 2017. And then we look at it globally, 350,000 deaths globally in 2017 uh, as a result of drug abuse. And then you look at alcohol, almost three point, approximately 3.3 million people uh, globally will die because of an alcohol-related, alcohol-related death. So it's, it's there. It's, it's, it's reality. And then you bring it more personally, you know, we could look, I know everybody's not from Louisville, so I didn't want to include Louisville statistics, but, you know, for those that are in Louisville, we could look at Louisville statistics and we could recognize how damaging it is to our communities. We could look at our school system and realize how damaging it is in our school system. Um, Whatever, whether it's Dayton, uh, you know, I met somebody from from Dayton earlier, you could look at Dayton statistics and see how damaging it is uh, in that. So is there really a problem? Of course there's a problem. There's an issue. Right? And so the conversation is, well, what is the solution to this issue? What's the practical? Right? What are we looking for? What's the practical response to this? I'm already involved in Celebrate Recovery, so how do I, how do, I do more? Or I'm a surgeon, and, and I see these people coming into my, into my, to my office or to my practice, and you know, there's something more that I can offer. There's something more that I can do. It's interesting if you're an employer uh, in here, if you own an, your own company or, or something along those lines. Like I've had employers call me and say, I am willing to hire someone to be a support system within the company because I need employees. I can't keep employees because of addiction, because I can't, can't keep them. And so I have employers saying, I will pay somebody a salary to essentially be a social worker. I mean, that's what we're talking about. I'll pay him a salary to be a social worker. I'll be, pay him a salary so that I can keep employees and that I can do whatever I can to help, uh, help employees. I mean, that's, that's where we are practically, is that it's, it's devastating our workforce. It's devastating our communities. And understand, too, this is not just an urban problem. I live in the, out in the middle of nowhere in Indiana. I love it. It's a rural community. It's wonderful. But it is ravaging my community. 
I work in downtown. It is ravaging Louisville, but it's ravaging little Charlestown, Indiana, too. And so it's not just an urban, urban thing. And so what is it? What is it? You'll see some definitions up here. So SAMHSA uh, is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Um, this is kind of a, the government arm uh, or a government arm, I guess, of, uh, you know, social work and addiction and health and, and all sorts of different, uh, uh, different mental health, excuse me, uh, different things. And so it says that substance abuse disorders occur when the recurrent use of alcohol and or drugs causes clinically significant impairment, including health problems, disability, and failure to meet major responsibilities at work, school, or home. So that's, that's what we're talking about, is that use is significantly impairing every aspect of your life, every aspect of your life. When we boil it down, we live, we work, we have families, we entertain, you know, all these different things. Substance use disorder is impacting every aspect of these lives, every aspect of our lives. And then Ed Welch, which I would commend uh, his book, Addictions, to you. Um, it's a great uh, Christian perspective, gospel uh, speaking into addiction. It's just a good resource, a good balance of resource in there. It says, addiction is bondage to the rule of a substance, activity, or state of mind, which then becomes the center of life, defending itself from the truth so that even bad consequences don't bring repentance and leading to further estrangement from God. If you think about addiction, and we were talking about this earlier, if you think about addiction, consequences oftentimes do not matter. They do not matter. And, and every time I think, I think about this often because, again, I mean, in 11 years you meet people, you see things, you hear things, you, under, you, you watch stuff that happens. And I think about a mother who lost a child in a house fire and her body is 80% burned. And it was all related to her addiction. And she is devastated and trying to get her life back in the midst of that trauma. That she admits is her fault. Is her, like, she did it. The consequences for her were not great enough to not use. And that's her admitting it. That's not, that's not me throwing her under the bus. Like, that's a direct conversation. It just, they weren't enough. They weren't enough. And then you see time and time again, even in our own ministry, our own work, um, in the past six months, we've had three people die. And there has been one person involved in each one of those deaths. And he's still alive. And so he's been present when all three of these guys have died. And he's got to bear that in his life. And when he came back to us, and, and he's come back and, and repented, and he's, I mean, there's a lot that's gone on there that, that we're rejoicing over. Uh, but he has to bear that. And he needs a significant help to bear that. Because the consequences didn't matter in those moments. It didn't matter. And, and that's, that's what I think Welch is getting at in his definition is it's an all-consuming desire. It's an all-consuming thing. When I, when I first started, I was down in Atlanta. I was, again, undergrad, sport management, 
nothing to do with this. It's great. Um, but I was interning at Georgia Tech's athletic department, and across the street there would be homeless folks um, you know, staying in a park. It's in between Georgia Tech and the Coca-Cola headquarters. We'll never forget it. And, and when I think about those times and I think about some of those experiences, I remember there's a, there's a line of trees there, and I would carry bottles of water. Again, my, my introduction to addiction was through homelessness. I would carry, carry bottles of water to the same people every Friday in the same park. And then one day I was like, well, where is this guy? So I went on the other side of the tree line. And that was a really bad mistake. And, and what ended up happening is the next week, somebody came up to me, this homeless, puts his arm around me and says, do not go on the other side of that tree line. Don't do it. And, and, and he was explaining to me the reality of it is that in that world, behind that tree line, nothing matters. Not even your life. It doesn't matter. Because what's going on behind that tree line it, it doesn't matter. And so I think about that again in, in all of these circumstances, all of these experiences. I think about, like, what does it really mean to not consider the consequences? And I'm like, this is what, it, this is what that looks like. And, 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 and story after story of that. And so, so that's what we're thinking about. That's what we're talking about with substance abuse disorder. That's what we think about. That's what we're hearing about. And oftentimes, and historically, there was addiction and then there was dependence. So if you looked at old, you know, uh, DSM-4s, which is kind of the mental health diagnosis and uh, substance abuse diagnosis, you would see kind of a separation between those two definitions. Now it's all under substance use disorder. Uh, and, and, and the reason why I think they combined is because they're, they're so intertwined as addiction and dependence. So the argument would be that somebody who's in addiction isn't necessarily always dependent, but dependence comes, I think that's where we're getting at with this definition, where it's like you, you, you can't live without it. I had a friend in college who was ministering to someone who was coming out of addiction uh, from alcohol, and he told me that he'd cut alcohol cold turkey and he died. And all the medical professors, I see faces in here, all the medical professors are like, no, no, you can't do that. Like, yeah, so like that's a dependence, and, and it's alcohol, and I think it's benzodiazepines. Um, if you try to cut that cold turkey... Like, your life is threatened. And so that's where medical detox and all sorts of other things come, in, come into play. But, but your life is threatened. And he had a friend who died because his life was transformed in that moment, but he just didn't have that knowledge. And so he's just like, oh, I'm just going to stop. And he stopped. And, and literally not, you know, however many days, weeks later, I mean, he was gone. He was gone. And because he was so dependent uh, on the substance. And so, so that, it's just a little background um, now this one, this one always generates a lot of emotions. This one, this one's fun. So I'd love to, I'd love to hear what you think about when you read some of these. And I might be in your way here. So you read some of these. Um, can everybody see that, or do I need to read them out? We good? Okay. You can't see them. Okay. So the way they're separated out is on one side. Here's here's statements. Now, understand, I am not making these statements up. That cut off. There we go. I'm not making these statements up. These are statements that have literally been told to me in one situation or another. Okay? Get a job. They deserve what they get. If they would just stop using and be responsible, then fill in the blank. They're just lazy. What a waste of a life. 
and they're a drain on society. Right? And then on the other side, it's not their fault. The system has failed them. A slight increase in taxes could solve this issue. All life is valuable. It's not a bad one. The government needs to do something about this. Any thoughts on those? What's that? It's in between. All right. Fair. That's fair. Anything else? They're all very like specific. Like, there might be somebody who like they need to get a job, right? Sure. But that can't be just the rush you paint everybody. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's good. Case to case basis. Okay. Anything else? That's an interesting. Yeah, that's good. They both shift responsibility. In some ways. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, all of those things are true, but that's it. I mean, that's it. It's so much more complex than that. It's not always just about a job is going to solve my, my problems. I see guys every single day that get jobs. And they still have things they're deal, you know, dealing with. Like, it's not, it's not that cut and dry. And a lot of times, again, this is a missions conference, so we'll talk about the gospel. A lot of times I hear every side of this equation coming from brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and I just have a hard time, and we'll get to this in the next slide, I promise, but I just have a hard time finding that attitude in the scriptures. I just, if somebody wants to point it out to me, that's great, but like, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. And, and so what I do see is just a few things. I could, I could point out more, but why should I care? The first one for me is what we call the Imago Dei, right? That every single person in this world was created in the image of God. Every single person in this world. So we're talking about addiction in here. And if I were to go through the list of, of all, the other, uh, all the other classes offered, all the other things that are available right now in this moment, you would find things you know, covering just a vast a vast array of particular topics, particular things around the world, particular locations around the world. I've been on trips with missionaries uh, in Africa who are ministering to Boko Haram uh, in the midst of some of the most tragic um, atrocities in the world. I have a friend in the Middle East right now who's, who gets questioned on a regular basis, or her team gets questioned on a regular basis of like, what are you doing here again? Why are you in my country you know, you hear stories of this time and time again. Every single person who is doing mission, whether it's locally, domestically, internationally, is doing it because they believe that every single person was created in the image of God and every single person deserves to hear the great hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of it. That's the heart. Like That's, that's the first part of it. And then secondly... We think about the Great Commission. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all to obey all that I have commanded them. So that's, that's another aspect of why we should care. Jesus never qualified in the Great Commission who's excluded. He just didn't. It's not, go, for, go therefore and make disciples of this particular economic class or this particular uh, location or this particular area. Well, historians and archaeologists believe that, that Jesus was staring, standing on top of a cliffside, a mountainside around the Sea of Galilee when he gives this command. And from that space, it's on a mount called Mount Arbel, from that space you can see the entirety of the Sea of Galilee, the entire region of, uh, of Galilee. You can see Tiberias, you can see Capernaum, you can see across to the Decapolis, you can see for miles. And so Jesus is saying, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then lastly, it's our own personal testimony. It's our own personal testimony. If we read this passage in Titus, and we won't read it, but if we, read it, uh, if we were to read this passage, Paul talks about how we were once one thing, but because of the washing of regeneration, because of the gospel, we are now something else. 2 Corinthians 5 says that the old has passed and the new has come. So as a Christian... We all have that testimony. I once was, and now I am, because of the gospel. And so I believe that we are often quick to forget the grace of God in our own life. And the scriptures don't allow us to do that. They don't allow us to do that. We are reminded, reminded countless of times of our dependence and need for a Savior. And we can't forget about that in the midst of addiction ministry. And so that's why I believe we should care. So then we'll get into some, some more of the practical. Um, you know, I don't know, again, I don't know, I know some of you in the room, um, but I don't know where everybody's coming from. And so I don't know what lines of work you're in. I don't know what kind of families you have. I don't know any of that. But, again, I think that if you're in here, you're trying to get some practical things to think about, some, some things to um, consider when it comes to addiction. And so when we start looking at, well, what are, what are some things that I can be looking for in my family members or my friends or in my practice or uh, you know, in my church or, or whatever the case may be? Because, just a sidebar, they're, they're, addiction knows no bounds. Right now, this day... 20 miles into downtown Louisville, 733 East Jefferson Street, in our residential program, recovery program, I both have a man in the program who has a Ph.D. and was a business school dean of a university uh, at the same time that I have a less than high school education, you know, 60-year-old man. Okay? I've had master's level teachers and football coaches from all over the country. It just, it knows no bounds. But there are things that we can see uh, in it, and, and, and some of the things that we look for uh, when you talk about students is uh, what is their interest level? It declines. Is, is something changing? Is there something drastic um, that's happening in this person's life is, as we think about you know, what in the world is going on because this person used to be this, and now they're just acting so, so completely different? Um, so we start talking about you know, young adults, students, 
Um, what is their schooling looking like? Poor work performance. Again, let's think back to our definition. Addiction, substance use disorder is impacting every aspect of our life. And so I've had employees before who were coming out of recovery and, and we employ them. And then all of a sudden they don't show up, you know, one day a week. And it's like, man, what's going on? I'm just sick. And they don't show up like two days a week. And it's like, really, what, you know, what's going on? Do we need to get you some help? Do you need to go to the hospital? And then all of a sudden it's like, I don't call when I don't show up. And, I mean, these are all things that, that you know, I had a friend in leadership tell me early on. I said, if, if there's a little bit of red... Just paint the whole thing red. And so that's, that's something I think that's helpful in the midst of addiction ministry is there's a little bit of red, let's, let's paint the whole thing red. Like there's, there's something happening here. It may not be relapse or it may not be use, but it's worth exploring what's going on. Physical appearance, you know, just changes. I mean, all of these are rooted down to changes. Behaviors, relationship changes, lack of energy Spending more money than usual or requesting to borrow money. Financial management. Um, appetite. I was telling someone earlier, I said, you know, in, in this line of work, if you're in it for long enough and you see one person on one day and then you see that same person six months from now, you can pretty well tell if they've been using or not. There are physical signs that you can tell, like, man, eh, things aren't good. Things aren't good. What's going on? You know, um, you start to learn and see some of these things. Um, and then the natural response I think we all have whenever we're being challenged on something, we don't like it, right? We don't like it. And so there's a defensiveness that, that pops up. If somebody doesn't have anything to hide, they won't hide it. <clears throat> that's, that's one thing I've learned a lot in, in substance abuse and, and, and addiction and working with folks is you can tell pretty quickly, like, if, if, if they're good, like, they're going to defend that goodness. They're going to defend it because there's a pride there. But if not, then they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna shift. They're going to shift everything. <coughs> and so we just have to learn to listen well, look for these signs and symptom, symptoms, be prepared to, to respond to those things. <coughs> so that was more around drug abuse. There's similar things in alcohol abuse, um, but, you know, some of it's the same. I think one thing that stuck out to me with these is, is isolation. <clears throat> isolation is, is really big um, in, in active use. Um, somebody doesn't want you to know. There's a lot of guilt and shame, especially when somebody that's gone through recovery and then there's a relapse. Like, I think we have to understand, like, there is guilt and shame that that person's feeling, whether warranted or not. And we deal with this all the time in, in, in our line of ministry. It's like a guy graduates, he finishes. <clears throat> we hear through the grapevine that this, the guy is, has relapsed and he's spiraling out of control. And we just long and we pray that he'll come back to us. We pray that he'll come back to us. But we know what's internally battling within him is I cannot face these people again. <coughs> Excuse me, I cannot face them again. And that's just a lie of the devil. It's just a lie. It's a self-deception that I can't face them. And, and so we, we just have to see and, and understand that, that these are some of the signs that, that as we're working with people and we're interacting with people, like these should be red flags that pop up for us. <clears throat> these should be things that we look at and say, something just isn't right. 
something's off. So what, what can we do? What can we do about that? <coughs> so we get into kind of some simplicity here. Simple in terminology, not simple in practice. Um, so the question is, is like use is identified. So we, we, we've recognized now what in the world do we do this person is using. And, and again, this could be in your church. This could be in your company. This could be in your practice. This could be in your uh, employers. This could be your family. This could be your friends. This could be anywhere for you. What in the world do we do? And I, I posit the first thing we do is pray. <laughs> the first thing we do is ask the Lord for grace and mercy and patience and perseverance and all of the things that we need in working with people. Understand that addiction ministry, addiction work, is working with people. It's not a widget. We're not making widgets. We're not a factory. We're working with people. And my wife, I love her to death. She is very patient and long-suffering with me at times. She is. And, and, and that's what it requires of, of this type of ministry, patience and long-suffering. So we pray. And then we want to quickly intervene. I know there's methodology to that. I'm not going to dive into all the different methodology involved in that. Um, but there's methodology to how do I intervene? What do I do? What, what is the, the, the appropriate way uh, to address this? And I think we have to be willing to be honest. I think we have to be willing to be honest uh, in those conversations and those interventions. But, but what happens, we see this. And I don't mean, and, and not to make light of it, but I don't mean you always have to get people in a room and somebody, you know, you surprise them like it's a surprise party, but it's really an intervention. That's not what I mean by intervening. Like, what I mean by intervening is like you, you and a brother or sister, you, somebody coming in love, in graciousness, thinking about Galatians 6.1, that the purpose of this is to restore. The purpose is to always restore this individual. So you do that with patience and grace and mercy to restore this person. Um, to what God has called them to be. It's a ministry of rest, restoration that you're doing. And so we, we, we intervene and we pray and we hope that there's a reception to that. That there's a receptiveness to, to what you're offering. And so this is where it gets challenged. This is where it requires work of us. And so anytime, and, and again, coming from the homelessness world, anytime my wife and I go to another city or another community, I Google rescue missions or homeless shelters or soup kitchens in that community. Why? Because I know definitively if I'm walking in downtown of X city, whether it's Indianapolis, wherever, I'm going to be approached by somebody for something. I just know that. I've just done it so long. I just know that. I want to be prepared to say I can't meet your need, but I know these folks that can. Would you go here and, and do this? And so anytime I talk to a group, I challenge that group to know the resources of their communities that are assisting in these. Know where the Celebrate Recoveries are. Know where the AANA meetings are. Know where uh, your inpatient recovery programs are. Know where your outpatient recovery programs are. You don't have to know all of them, and you don't have to know all the people involved in them, but you can know some. You can know some. And so if somebody is receptive then I think it's like, okay, now I'm prepared. I'm prepared to say, here's, here's help. Here's help. And let's start working. And this is not a, here's a phone number, call this person. Here's a phone number, call that person. Sometimes it has to be that. Sometimes you're not that person in their life. 
But if you are, it's like, let's go there together. Let's go there together. Let's talk about, you know, what this could look like. There's a couple of guys in the audiences that I sat on a panel with, in the audience that I sat on a panel with not too long ago, uh, and they talked about this capturing the moment. Capturing the moment. That moment might be very brief, where that person is saying, I want something new, or I want something different. So let's capture that moment and be prepared to capture that moment. So that's, that's, that's a great encouragement um, that I have for you all as you're in your communities, is your resources are there, they are accessible, know some of them, just research some of them, be prepared uh, in the midst of that. And again, it's a walking alongside. If someone is not receptive, if they're not receptive, honestly, I think you go back to step one and two. I think you just pray and continue to intervene. And that's all you can do. That's all you can do. Pray and continue to intervene. That's, that's what I, that's, that's it. I don't know what else to tell you other than that. <laughs> so, going a little bit further into it, someone is in active, active use. There's that prayer. There's that intervention again. This one's real hard. This is real hard. This is where, this is where if you're in this situation, you'll have to make some of the most difficult decisions you've ever made in your life. Right here. And that is either gradually cutting support systems or sometimes you've got to cut them instantly. And that's hard. That is so hard. I can't tell you how many times I've had grandmothers and mothers crying on the phone or fathers or sisters or brothers crying on the phone trying to figure out what in the world they do and not wanting their child to die. I've had mothers call me and say, I know you can't tell me if my son's there, but I need to know if my son's alive. We've had sons who their mother literally thought they were dead for 15 years, and he was in our program, and in our office right there, calls his mom and says, Mom, I'm alive. I mean, 15 years, mom thought he was dead. Hadn't heard from him ever. People in our program that they saw their child as an infant 13 years ago, and they get to see him this month, actually. I mean, this is hard, hard decisions. And you're like, maybe it's not that bad. No, it is. It's life-altering decisions for people. And, and oftentimes I think we confuse and we forget that making these hard decisions is, un, or we think that they might be unloving, that it's not caring, that it's cold and it's harsh, and people might accuse us of that. And we might think that about ourselves. And we, sleep, we lose sleep at night worrying and wondering over this. And I would just say to anyone that might experience that, whether it's in here or anywhere else, that it is a grace and a mercy and a loving thing to do to cut off at times. It just is. And it's hard. And it's difficult. And I can't speak to it. I have two children, five and two. I don't know. I don't know. I can only tell you what I've experienced uh, and, and the conversations I've had to have with people. It's the most difficult things that some people have ever had to face in their lives. How do we encourage someone that's in a recovery program? We rejoice over this. We rejoice in someone trying to get help. 
We encourage them. We pray for them. And we continue to listen well. I can't stress that enough. We listen well. When I was in Atlanta, I would drive in and I would go the same uh, I'd take the same exit off of I-20 going into Atlanta. And the reason being is that there would be a man standing on the corner and then be a man underneath the viaduct. And I wanted to say hello to that same person every week. That was my intention. So I'd get off and Melvin would be standing there and then Chucky would be over here. So Melvin would hold a sign and all Melvin's sign would say would be, smile, God loves you. Or God bless you today. Or it's not that bad. And they nothing, I want something. It was always just like this message of encouragement. And then you'd go and you'd say hi to Chucky and be like, hey, my name's Chucky. I'm not the bad one. You know, like he's, you know, just not one to mix, mix up that he's the bad Chucky from a movie. Right. And, uh, and so I always wanted to talk to these guys. And one of the things that I learned in that is I pulled up next to Melvin one day and I said, hey, Melvin, how are you doing? And Melvin just looked at me with this, this dead stare and this great joy. And he said, how in the world do you know my name? And it's a story I'll never forget. I mean, it's 11 plus years ago at this point, and I'll never forget it. And the reason being is, and it goes back to the Imago Day. it goes to this listening well, it goes to this idea that this person is a human being and valuable and worthy. Something as simple as just knowing the dude's name. And so somebody who's trying to get their life back, who has said, I'm, I'm tired, I'm ready to move forward, let's encourage that. Let's listen well in the midst of that. Let's understand that there's so much that has probably gone on that, honestly, you probably don't want to know about. You probably don't. But listen well. Listen well in the midst of that. Celebrate small successes. We rejoice when one of our guys gets a job. We rejoice when one of our guys hits 30 days sobriety. We rejoice when one of our guys moves from the dorm uh, to an apartment of their own because that's a positive next step for them. We rejoice in the small things because the small things can lead to big things. The small things can lead to big, big things. So as you can tell, I you know have this sports background and love, love athletics and all this kind of stuff, but if you think about coaching – any coach, any successful coach focuses on the small things because the small things and the discipline of the small things produces great success. Let's think about it in the same, same manner in this. Trust the recovery program in the process. This is a difficult one too. I, I, what, I, what I mean by this is I would not just say go somewhere. As you're trying to walk alongside somebody, know where, you're, know where they're going, know who they're going to Understand that there's decisions that you may not like. Like an, an, an example of that would be in our program, we don't allow any outside contact for 30 days. I tell you what, our, our wives who drop their husbands off and our mamas who drop their sons off, they do not like that. They do not like that. I, you mean I can't talk to my husband or my son for 30 days? No, you can't. They do not like that. But just trust it. Trust it. Trust the process. Trust what's going on. Trust uh, the, the program. And then begin thinking about what does life after this look like? What does life after this look like? Recovery is lifelong. Recovery is lifelong. But what does reintegration look like? 
And so we celebrate, again, we celebrate this newness um, that we see. We celebrate the fact that there's goals and expectations and, and hopes and dreams that, that people experience. If you've ever read the book, When Helping Hurts, I would commend it to you as well. It's a great resource, but, but in it, it talks about this idea that, you know, these outreach workers were going into this project housing, and they were, uh, they were talking to all these different people down in Chattanooga, I believe, and, uh, and they're sitting there and they're saying, well, what can we do for you, and what can we do for you, and what can we give you, and what can we give you as if those individuals living there by by definition needed something and what they realized is we need to go in and actually ask them what do they hope for in life what do you hope what are your hopes and dreams and they and and the story is just phenomenal because when they when they started asking that question the whole world opened up it was, I want to own my own restaurant. I want to do this. I want to do that. It wasn't about what I can give you. It's about what they wanted to accomplish and how can we walk alongside you to accomplish these. It's just a wonderful testimony of, uh, of empowering the individual and not condemning or enabling or, or criticizing or, uh, or pushing down that individual. It's giving them a voice and a power uh, in their own life. And so accountability is key. Uh, in the midst of this, accountability is key. So we always encourage daily routines, no idle time. You know, uh, just just know what you're doing each day, and know who, and and have somebody who also knows what you're doing each day. This is not meant to be walked alone. You know, remember that isolation. Remember those things that we talked about before. Know what you're doing each day. Have it mapped out, especially on weekends. If you're working a normal job throughout the week. You've got weekends, and weekends are just kind of like, okay, well, what do I do? Do I sit here and twiddle my thumbs? No. Like, be active. It's got to be purposeful time. Value honesty over perfection. This was a big one. This was one that I borrowed from my program manager. I asked him to, to kind of look through this and say, hey, man, what am I missing? Value honesty over perfection. Not one of us in here are perfect in our own lives. We can do nothing with anyone in ministry until we have an honest relationship. And, and honesty has to be at the part of it. So value that honesty. Even if it's bad honesty, value it. Value it. Create that space where somebody can be open and honest about what you're doing and, and who you are. And then remember those signs and symptoms. <clears throat> and then this, again, we're thinking, if we're, we're following the flow, this is post-recovery, this is understanding that, that relapse can happen. Uh, statistically, I read somewhere that, that oftentimes about 85% of people coming out of recovery uh, will use again within the, within the year. That's a staggering statistic. So what do, we, what do we do about it? How do we watch and see and, and, and learn and observe? Because in relapse, intervention is so critical. Quick intervention is so critical. Uh, in the midst of it. And so we want to make sure that while, while someone, we celebrated this, you know, relapse, there's, there's concern here that we're walking and we're looking at this. We're looking at this isolation. Uh, they've stopped going to their meetings or treatment or support groups or community groups or church. Um, they've, maybe they're still going, but they've kind of bottled up. So that, that zeal isn't there anymore that was there at the beginning. Again, we start to see some of the habits happening Again, eating habits, sleeping habits, hygiene, different things like that. Denial, one at the bottom here. I can probably have a couple of beers here and there. Man, oh man. If I, how many times I've heard that from folks in recovery, and it's like, that's not good, man. 
And you try to intervene and you try to intervene. And it's like, this is where that heads. And so if you start hearing those things, knowing that background, those are signs. Those are things to be listening for. Again, going back to listening well. Those are things to listen well for uh, in the midst of that. Yeah, and then, and then people put themselves back into the places where they used before, back into the relationships that they used before. There's that deceit and deception and lying and, and all of those things that comes in. And then we go back to the money one, right? So what, you ha- you're working full-time and you need money? Or I know your finances. Or I'm your, you know, we have some guys, like, I'm your payee and, like, what's going on? You know, you're, you're coming to me every 10 minutes, you know, those types of things. Like, these are all signs and things to be, to be thinking about in the midst of it. And these are just some last uh, kind of thoughts. We've got about 13 minutes left. Um, and these are just things that kind of came, came to mind, um, and we'll have some time for, for questions at the end. But uh, addiction substance abuse disorder can be overwhelming, and it's highly personal. And so don't walk alone. Don't walk alone. Um, accountability is key, and it will likely require the, some of the most difficult decisions you make in your life. We've talked about that. We, we went through some of that. Addiction is as much internal as it is external, if not more. Certainly there are circumstances. Certainly there are events that contribute to it. Certainly there are external factors that um, have caused and led someone into that. Uh, but there's also a complete internal reality going on uh, within that person. And I think that's where listening well comes in. If relapse occurs, pray and intervene quickly. We talked about that. And then for most, if not all, at times, uh, addiction is a long-term battle. This is a long-term process. This is a long-term uh, avenue of support, ministry of support, many of, ministry of walking with someone uh, in their life. And it doesn't discriminate. We talked about that earlier. It doesn't discriminate. It knows no bounds. Um, again, I could tell you story after story of um, folks that had, every, had everything, uh, and yet addiction took it all. And so... Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of presentation piece of it. Um, be happy to answer any questions or thoughts, or if there's something that you just are dying, wanting to die to ask, just by all means, we'll work with it. So, yes, ma'am. Um, you're talking about interventions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they go hand in hand with that uh, cutting off uh, is where I see it go well. Um, so I, there's a, um, gosh, probably 88-year-old grandmother uh, who dropped her 25-year-old son off at our, our front door. And his ultimatum was, you either go here um, or you're, you're going here, which is the street. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not saying that every situation is necessarily that extreme. I mean, there's outpatient uh, stuff that works. So you start thinking about business leaders and, and company leaders, and uh, it's amazing how many of those folks are in recovery or in some sort of outpatient support. <clears throat> but I think when you start uh, in an intervention, whether that's with a group of people, whether that's one, one or two people going to one, one person, I think when you start laying out the reality of what their, what their decisions and what their life is doing, not only to them but to those around them, you're trying to bring a perspective. Uh, you're trying to bring a perspective to, to their life. Um, and, and then at the end of the day, it's 100%. That person ultimately, like, unless they're court-ordered, that person has a choice to make. 
I would say, even though they have a choice to make, and they, some people would say, well, they don't work. Well, if you want to go by statistics, there's a lot of things that don't work that we still do because we care and we love about people. Uh, we love people. Uh, and so an intervention is, is all about calling someone to be restored, Galatians 6.1, calling someone to be restored with the hope that they'll respond to that, to that call. Uh, so, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's... When you're saying cut off, like, support, what about relationships? Like, I think there's a time for that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a time for that. Um, I think there's a time where, where that relationship is cut off. Um, I had a dad recently. Um, he's a friend of mine. Uh, he's probably in his 60s or so, but his son has a dual diagnosis but doesn't know it. Uh, and it's very tragic, very tragic. And, and uh, he's been dealing with it for years and years now. Uh, and he got to the point where he's like, I just can't return his calls anymore. I just can't. I can't do it. He's like, and he's he sent them to us. We've interacted with, I've interacted with him. He's posted all kinds of fun things on our Facebook page. I mean, it's just he's he's just duly diagnosed and he just doesn't know it. Uh, and he's roaming our streets today. Um, and his dad said, I just can't do it anymore. It's like I have to cut him off because the only way the only way that I see any pathway forward is if for him to literally have no other avenue. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the hardest decisions that you'll have to make in your life. Yeah. Yes, sir. No. I'm trying to find, find the words to say this, but how disappointed you are that the Christian community is not supporting us more? Because I look at this room, and your seats, they should be full. As you said, like, as Christian people, we're supposed to give, like, help the community, and this room should be full. And I don't know how you have the energy to do this <laughs> every day, because God bless you, because I'm just coming back to, like, coming back, and I see I need to help people more and more. And this disappoints me because it's like, this room should be full. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, I don't, I, I, I want to be careful not to paint a broad brush. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I think the question was like, uh, what are my thoughts on why Christians are not more actively engaged um, in this work? And, uh, you know, just that we have empty seats in here and there shouldn't be because this is a huge thing going on in all of our communities and, um, and, and, I, and I think, you know, again, I don't want to paint a, a broad brush. I think the world is overwhelming. The, the sin, the need of the world is overwhelming. And I have friends, and I'll speak to Louisville specifically, I have friends that lead ministry in homeless outreach. I have friends that lead ministry in uh, bringing women out of the sex trafficking, you know, um, uh, prostitution and, and, and all of that. Uh, in this community, you know, we have we have friends that are doing all this type of ministry. So there, there are. I want to encourage everyone that there are Christians who care. There are Christians. Yeah. I'm not saying like, but I'm not saying like, it should be more. Oh, agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And that's where I see like. Yeah. I think I think it's things like this. It's education. It's um, and this mic's going out, so I'll try to talk louder. But. Um, it's education, it's, it's exposing people to the problem, it's providing avenues for people to serve. So we, you know, just, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot, for sure. It's a lot of that. Yes, ma'am. Um, now, just to ask you answer this too, it's more of educational awareness. We know the community, most of the time, know the drug addiction is proven. <coughs> but then again, there are people that wanted to help, but they don't know how because yeah. there's mm-hmm. lack of training and lack of know-how or yeah. knowledge of it. So there are people that want it, but the thing is, like, we have to have, I believe, 
because this is not just drug addiction and sex trafficking is huge right now. So we have to come together, different entities together, to really tackle these issues because it's not just going to help one state. We have to get the government, get the community, get the churches. It's if we have to work together. Yeah, and there's there's a couple of good articles I think in your your book that you have just about um, sort of this holistic approach, um, this sort of multi I think it's uh, what are they talking about like a multidiscipline disciplinary team, um, you know. So we see a lot of that. Um, I was first exposed to that out of out of Boston, uh, where like an MD and social workers and psychiatrists and outreach workers all would go to the streets together. Uh, and they would come and do street outreach, and so they would interact with homeless folks who, I mean, homelessness and addiction and mental health, they all intertwine, okay? Uh, and so they would do this outreach, um, and they would do it together so that whatever need that person might have had, there's probably somebody on this outreach team speaking into that need. Uh, and so it is a multidisciplinary approach. And like I said, there's a good article, I think, in, um, in, the, in the book that, that talks about kind of that multidisciplinary approach. But it takes, it takes everyone. Uh, we collaborate. I'm just going to move this if you're all cool with that. Uh, we collaborate with everyone from Christian organizations to non-Christian organizations where we can um, for the purposes of saying we can't do everything, but together we can do more. Uh, and we'll partner where we can partner that doesn't violate our consciousness and our, our worldview, um, but we will work together to try to provide and meet, meet a need in the community. And I think every community, and you can do that on the mission field, you can do that all around the world. You know, I've had missionaries that worked right alongside the UN or work right alongside WHO or work right alongside, you know, anybody else. You know, they're, they're willing to do that um, because the need, the need is there. So, yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to have to talk about it. I mean, it's, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Yeah, I think, uh, I think community awareness, education, um, you know, putting a face to it um, and circumstances, whether it's anecdotal or statistical uh, to it, absolutely. I think there's a, certainly a community education uh, involved in it. And then, and then celebrate successes. Celebrate, I mean, we celebrate lives. This is not about... Uh, you know, you, you think about statistics, and, and, and I was asked earlier, you know, what is our success rate? And you think about, you know, roughly 30%. Well, that, for us, if we're serving 100 people a year, that's 30 people whose lives have been, been positively impacted um, through this work. That's 30 people. If it were one person, I know friends and, and missionaries all over the world that would love to have one convert. They've spent decades in, in closed countries, they spent decades in predominant Muslim or predominant Buddhist or predominant Hindu countries or atheistic countries, and they long, they long for a convert. They long for a convert. And I think we, we need to look at it in the same vein as we do mission in our own communities, in our own context, that we're longing for a convert. We're longing for a victory uh, in the midst of this.
I'm not going to preach, I promise, but we do. So, yes, ma'am. Questions? Okay. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I was just wondering, uh, I've never been to Kentucky before. My husband and I were driving around. Okay. And we saw a sign uh, related to panhandling yeah. and discouraging it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so <coughs> where I live, it's ridiculous and it's ruined our community. Yeah. People are living in those tents and the community is saying, oh, it's homelessness. And I look at it and I say, how sad it's addiction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Panhandling is is challenging um, in our community as well. So uh, there's two two sides of that. One side is that not all panhandlers are homeless, and some panhandlers have homes and cars, and they drive and they park somewhere, and then they panhandle. So I sat on a task force about six years ago in Louisville dealing with this. So that's just a reality that not everybody is is panhandling. But I would say there's oftentimes a correlation between the panhandler and homelessness and addiction. Absolutely. Um, I would say there's, there's definitely a correlation between that. Uh, Jefferson County, which is what Louisville's in, um, you know, has always balanced and tried to have ordinances and different things. I've known somebody that's been, you know, arrested 40 plus times for panhandling. But what happens is they, they get picked up. Somebody thinks they're getting arrested. They get dropped off about four corners later and they, and they, you know, go on about their day. So they're not really arrested. Oh, I'm saying, I'm saying that it's all, it's all encompassing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm saying it's all encompassing. I'm saying some are not homeless and that's their job. And then I'm saying that some, it's, it's an avenue of supporting primarily and predominantly their addiction, but just their lifestyle on the street. Yeah, absolutely it is. I'd like to close the message that there is hope. Amen. If you have somebody in your family that's an addict, there is hope. This young lady sitting next to me is my daughter. In 2012, I had to make a tough decision go through the streets because you can't live in my house and disobey me like this. She chose the streets instead and spent some hard years in the streets. Very hard. But now it's 2019. She's been clean for four years. She's serving God, and she's here with us for the first time on this mission field. So there is hope. Yeah, amen. There is hope. Yeah, amen.
All right. Thank you all. I appreciate it. Hope you all have a good rest of the conference.